You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Eric Kahn. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about why overload is destroying men. In his book, The Overload Syndrome, Richard Swenson describes an all-too-common condition in which moderns typically find themselves, and that is this. We're generally overworked, overcommitted, and on the brink of burnout at all times. Many of us wear the frantic and frenetic pace of our lives as a badge of honor. And when we do stop for a gasp of air, we do so just long enough to tell our friends or colleagues how busy we really are. The great oddity is that an astounding number of people in the workforce now describe their work as, quote, so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, end quote. So it's this crazy irony. It turns out we're burning ourselves out by efficiently, very efficiently, doing more meaningless work than ever before. It's efficient, but it's completely pointless. It's the equivalent of running harder and faster on a hamster wheel to nowhere. And if we do have any in-between spare moments, they are now filled with a smartphone or an endless morphine drip of social media apps, news stories, notifications, and banal celebrity clickbait. You know what I'm talking about. Most people today can't even fathom what it's like to be bored because we always have something in front of our face to entertain us. Even at the gas station, there's a little screen that rolls commercials while you pump your gas. Scripture, meanwhile, we assure ourselves, tells us to redeem the time, and so we misinterpret this as filling every spare second with a blur of frenetic activity. As Christians, we somehow justify this torrid pace of life, and we think that it's somehow hyper-spiritual to live this way. Hellbent on efficiency, we seldom ask if the work we are doing has any essential value whatsoever. What good is being efficient if you're doing the wrong things? It doesn't help that inflation in an increasingly luxury economy has drastically risen since the 1970s. This is when the U.S. moved in the direction of fiat currency and away from a gold standard of any kind. What has not risen are salaries. And so to keep pace with the rising cost of vehicles, healthcare, and consumer goods, we now have to work exponentially harder just to keep from drowning. We also now send our women in record numbers into the workforce, which further takes away from the stability a household has traditionally provided. There's less peace and refreshment in a household and there's more chaos because more and more people are working and they're working at this kind of torrid pace. Now, rather than curbing our appetites or addressing our incredibly stupid societal habit of borrowing and spending on the debt of our grandchildren, we mistakenly believe we can simply redouble our efforts year in and year out. Not surprisingly, the number of hours Americans work per year has grown by 400% since 1950. What we fail to comprehend is that humans are, by definition, creatures designed with limitations. 
we also fail to recognize the law of diminishing returns. You see, simply working harder at some point ceases to produce the payoff it did before. You can't work harder to an infinite degree and expect infinite returns on your work or investment. Swenson blames this condition on a number of environmental factors unique to citizens of a modern society that is just hell-bent on constant progress, on efficiency, and relentless activity. Much of this mindset is a side effect of the Industrial Revolution, which put us on a never-ending quest to accomplish more in less time and to maximize productivity at all costs. For better or worse, these business practices have spilled over into every area of human existence, so that even our leisure time is regimented and broken down into 5, 10, 15, or 30-minute time chunks controlled by a factory clock. What no one seems to account for is that humans aren't machines, and sometimes we need free play that isn't guarded by our overprotective mother and her playdate schedule. The other thing that's really interesting is that John Maynard Keynes, the economist, predicted in the early 20th century that by the end of that century, we would be working 15-hour weeks because, he said, all the technology, all the efficiency, we just simply wouldn't have to work as hard. Ironically, we work harder than ever, and we spin our wheels faster than ever, but we don't really seem to be going anywhere. In fact, as the book Bullshit Jobs points out, more and more people are doing work that is almost completely unnecessary. As it turns out, this obsession with overload, well, it's an unhealthy obsession that seems to plague many Americans. The pace at which we've been living has had catastrophic effects on our health. Physically, the rates of disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity have skyrocketed. And psychologically, the occurrences of anxiety, mental breakdown, depression, and suicide have risen significantly. The constantly rising use of prescription medications, from Viagra and Ambien to Prozac, only underscore the problem. Our anxious toil has resulted in stunning failures of sexual potency, sleep, and mental health. Beyond that, as we'll discuss more in a moment, Chronic stress elevates levels of cortisol and demolishes testosterone in men, leading to immunocompromised men with very little vitality left for meaningful pursuits like sex, culture building, and resistance to various forms of tyranny. Not surprisingly, the plummeting levels of testosterone have done tremendous damage to the overall state of masculinity, and in turn, marriages, households, businesses, churches, and culture as a whole. I want to talk about now why overload is so bad for men. Many of us have embraced this way of life and we don't even think about it. It's simply the air we breathe. We go to work, we put in incredible hours. That's what everyone else around us is doing. We come home, we rush through our dinner, we go to our side hustle, we do more work, and we never really stop to ask, is this the pace that we ought to be living? Now, 100 years ago, you might have looked at it and you said, somebody from that time would look at us and say, you guys are crazy. But because, again, we're in this fishbowl, we don't tend to see the problem. So I want to unpack the ways in which overload is bad for men. Number one, overload reveals a significant theological problem. 
While God commands that we rest both one day per week and then regularly each day, many of us pridefully think that we can live without any limits. Listen to the number of advertisements that say things like no limits, right? Push yourself to the edge at all times, max out your credit cards, live on the brink of destruction, live with maximum debt. This is the way you ought to be doing it. But what this reveals is that instead of formulating priorities and accepting that there is a universal rule of trade-offs, that is to say we cannot do everything, well, what do we do? We foolishly suppose I can do it all. You begin to see that this is an attitude of arrogance and pride. Meanwhile, we sleep a few measly hours per night. We drown ourselves in caffeine and nicotine to make it through another shift. And we work 16-hour days on a regular basis. This isn't productive, it's not honorable, and it's not godly. Most of the time, it's a manifestation of the rank sin of arrogance. What's godly is working hard and then resting while you enjoy the presence of family and friends. This is what Solomon says repeatedly in Ecclesiastes. What good is all this work if you don't also have a family to enjoy it with? if you can't sleep at night when you go home. As Solomon points out, this way of living is incredibly stupid, and he compares it to foolish toil, anxious toil, and chasing the wind. As Solomon says, most of this toil derives actually from envy of our neighbor and is as productive as trying to grab hold of the wind. If you want to wonder what that's like, just go out into Kansas on a windy day and start chasing after the wind. See if you can grab it in your hands. You'll be there forever. You'll probably die of cardiac arrest. Far from an endorsement of laziness, however, Solomon says the goal is to fill one hand with quietness or rest and the other with toil. So think about this. The point is God only gave you two hands and they need to be balanced with rest and with work, right? You fill both hands with anxious toil you're going to be a miserable person, you're going to die, and you don't get to take any of it with you, right? But what Solomon says, the wisest man on planet Earth outside of the Lord Jesus himself, he says, you need the balance. You need to work, and then you need to rest. And we need to protect both of these as important features of the manly and godly life. Here's the point. Overload and anxiety are the result of trying to have two competing things at the same time. Right? Have you ever watched toddlers do this? They want to run outside and ride their bike, but they also want to hold onto their hamburger. And so they're staring at both and they can't figure it out. So they try to do both. They crash on the bike because they're trying to eat their hamburger while they're riding on their bike. You've seen it happen. Right? But this is what we do as adults as well. Jesus said it perfectly. He said, You cannot serve God and money, meaning you cannot have two priorities. But so often, we try to straddle these positions and priorities in our life. And so we hold on to two priorities that are competing and contradictory even sometimes. Here's what Jesus and what I am saying to you. If you're frantic, overwhelmed, and chronically anxious, it reveals you have a two masters type idolatry going on in your own heart. How do I know that? Because that's what the Word of God says. And I also run into this problem regularly. In my own life. So, second, what is the second problem with overload? Well, chronic overload strangles a man's creative capacity. 
One of the biggest problems with living in a constant state of overload, that is to say, a life without margins, is that it destroys our creative energy. As a result, chronic stress leads to bad decision making, it leads to bland work, and a mere survival mentality. When a society is faced with the constant threat of destruction every day, it has little time to pursue the arts, the scientific endeavors, or the imagination to invent new goods and services. Perhaps overload is one reason why our generation has produced so few great men or great works of art. In my own life, moments of inspiration most frequently strike when I have ample time to go for, say, an extended bike ride an extended hike through the mountains or the woods, to read vigorously, to meditate over a fire with a glass of bourbon, or to enjoy a day skiing with my family, to choose not to spend every dollar that I make, right? These are the conditions that lead to creativity. On the other hand, I have little energy to write, podcast, or engage in thoughtful, meaningful conversations when I'm constantly overwhelmed by an overbooked schedule credit card payments, crushing debt, or any number of life commitments. Third, overload stifles masculine virtue. As the book Bronze Age Mindset makes clear, men who lived in spaces they don't own are like gorillas in a cage. They somehow sense their captivity, and in this oppressed and trapped state, they are reduced to a docile and sad existence. If you've ever been to the zoo and you see the lion just lying about being miserable, you know exactly what we're talking about. This is the condition of many men in our corporate slave state today. In order to develop their inborn powers and masculine virtue, and I want you to hear me on this, men need owned spaces to master. This means that we need to own our own businesses, we need to own land, and we need to own various forms of productive property. That's not to say that there isn't a time and place to work for a corporation, but certainly you need to guard a mindset that values own spaces. Otherwise, you're continually and perpetually a wage slave for someone else. Consider for a moment life in the corporate slave state. Creativity and imagination are continually stifled. Men's time is not their own. You're working for someone else and they're purchasing your time. And they are constantly given more work with less resources for accomplishing those tasks. I call this the more bricks, less straw mentality of so much of corporate life today. They often work for oppressive corporations, these men's, men do, whose strategic aim is to crush manly enthusiasm with a suffocating pile of TPS reports. Men are encouraged to adapt to a passive-aggressive environment that is all too often controlled by decrepit, gaunt old men and women, and in turn, their courage, creativity, and masculine energy are stamped out. This type of environment crushes the souls of men, and it takes its toll on the body too. Studies have shown that, surprise, surprise, sitting at a desk all day under artificial light with monumental workloads and constant stress well, it leads to a plethora of health problems, including poor circulation, poor joints like your knees and hips. It leads to depression, high blood pressure, and a host of other health issues. This type of work environment also greatly impacts the types of hormones that are present in a man's body. 
stress hormones, when present for extended periods of time, destroy testosterone, neuron receptors, and overall immune health. This greatly affects a man's life. Perhaps this is one significant reason why testosterone levels have plummeted in men over the last two decades. Without these hormones present, well, a man is going to lack proper aggression, courage, physical strength, mastery, and he will also fail to exhibit sexual potency in a meaningful way. Fourth, overload prevents men from organizing in gangs. We've said before in the show that one of the most important things for a man to do is to build his tribe, to build his gang. But this often doesn't happen when men are overloaded. One of the key features of working for someone else in a corporate wage slave environment is that they own your time, not a finished product. As a result, this crushes any drive you may have to get your work done and move on with your life. Even if you did finish your tasks early, they would just create more for you to do. And so there's always going to be an endless pile of busy work. And so men are actually trained not to finish work in a timely manner, but to make work last for a certain period of time. You milk it, in other words. It also creates a state of what I will call learned helplessness, whereby men simply go with the flow, they avoid conflict, and they never step outside of a prescribed checklist of feminist-approved activities in and outside of the workplace. What little time we do have as men is reserved for nights and weekends, and many men are simply too exhausted to form meaningful male friendships with their spare moments. Since they aren't generally working alongside other men in the workplace on meaningful tasks and pursuits, these men come home, maybe they play poker one night a week, spend some time with their family, and then they go to bed. They seldom read, they seldom have time to think about the main purpose or aim trajectory of their lives. But without these male gangs or brotherhoods, men become isolated and ultimately less potent. They do not organize, cultivate strong community bonds, or strive for the same mission and purpose. And without this mission and purpose, men remain listless, and they are like declawed lions stuck behind the plexiglass cage of the zoo that we talked about before. Fifth, overload numbs and distracts men from meaningful work on mission. In order for men to think about the trajectory of their life, as we just said, or how to effectively take dominion of their surroundings, how to build schools, how to build churches, how to develop communities and disciple within those communities. They need leisure time, as well as energy, to do all of these things. But what our society prescribes is a combination of constant burnout in the midst of meaningless work, followed up with soul-numbing luxuries like indulgent eating, television, or binge-watching other men compete in athletic endeavors. And by the way, the church is just as bad at this as anyone else, as I've written about before on my website in the article, The Restful Church. As our societal planners well know, one of the best ways to neutralize masculine energy is by creating an environment of overload and stress in conjunction with lavish pleasure. This makes men fat, listless, and disheartened. In the book, Bronze Age Mindset, the author says this, Struggle for space. A healthy animal, not under distress, not maimed, not trapped by man, seeks first when young, space. Animals seeks physical and social space to develop inborn powers. All of this requires precisely freedom from struggle for survival 
or time away from this, a reprieve from this pressure. Life at its most basic struggle for ownership of space. End quote. At this point in the show, I want to talk about how you can conquer overload and realize your true purpose in life. This is the ultimate thing. Overload is preventing you from realizing what you were really put on this earth to do and then going and doing that meaningful, fruitful work that will leave a lasting impact on your family and the world around you. Since chronic overload is so destructive, it's worth considering practical wisdom and straightforward habits that we can master in order to conquer it. Once you do these things, you'll start to create a life with room to roam. You will have blank space to think, create, and live with greater purpose. In turn, your life will become more meaningful, productive, enjoyable, and your labor more satisfying. First, I want to look at the principle of margin, or creating blank space. In an earlier work written by Richard Swenson, we just talked about his book, The Overload Syndrome, he's also got a book titled Margin. In this book, he succinctly points out that men were not made to live at full capacity all the time. You're not made to live maxing out your credit cards, maxing out your debt, maxing out your calendar. While moderate levels of stress combined with periods of rest are necessary for growth and flourishing, Swenson, who is himself a medical doctor, argues that constant overwhelming levels of stress apart from rest are physically and psychologically suffocating. As he points out, most people can do this for a long time, and they're like a sapling that's bowled over by a snowdrift. Over time, though, he warns, those saplings tend to break, and the only way that they heal is by developing scar tissue. Think about, for a moment, weightlifting. If you weightlift on a regular basis, you know that one of the most important things you can do is lift and then rest. If you were to lift your biceps, like do bicep curls every single day for two weeks straight, and every single day you max your biceps out to failure, well, you're prone for injury. You're prone for hurting your body. It's not going to be healthy, and you're probably not going to grow in the way that you want. Right? Any good weightlifting coach will tell you you need to work out, you need to stress the muscle, then you need to rest, and you need to nourish your body so that you have nutrients for the muscles to grow. Swenson's book title is derived from a fundamental principle that almost no one notices, even though we encounter it every day. Have you ever noticed that books have margins? You know, blank space on the outer edges of the text where nothing is printed? That's kind of a strange thing when you stop to think about it. But there's a good reason that publishers do this, and always have. It's because our minds would be overwhelmed if every square inch of the page was crammed with letters, words, and sentences. As it turns out, blank spaces in between sentences and around the pages, what we call margin, is just as important as the words on the page. It's the same reason that one of the hottest trends in web, magazine, and home design is to create copious amounts of blank space. Again, people whose lives are cluttered messes of disorganized chaos, well, they long for these blank spaces. Space for their mind to simply rest. For men, this is especially important. Some of you will remember there was a comedian who did a skit about this, I think, and it was called The Nothing Box. And the wife would say, how is it that every time I look at my husband, he's sitting in the couch 
And he's like completely zoned out. And she says, what are you doing? And he's like, nothing. Right, man, we do this. After a long, hard day, I will do this. I'll shower or I'll weight lift. And then I'll just sit there and stare into the void. Well, this is actually psychologically and scientifically proven that men need this blank space, especially to simply clear their minds, rest, and be refreshed. Right? This is the same deal with websites, books, etc. We need blank space to help us process, to slow down, enjoy, and ultimately be more productive in work that is truly meaningful. Right? Our lives are the same way. We need blank space. This is what the ancients called leisure, and they put a premium on it. It was to meditate, to reflect on your work, to organize with bands of other piratical men, to harness our creative powers, to recuperate physically and mentally, and to commit ourselves to the kind of work that would last for generations. If you're somebody like Christopher Columbus or Pizarro, right, these great explorers, they didn't want to go explore the world because they were being drowned in 90-hour work weeks and ready to jump off a bridge rather than go back to work the next day, right? They had some measure of time and space away from these daily survival needs so that they could think creatively, so that they could explore and they could go and they could do wonderful, inspirational things that would benefit and bless humanity, right? We need leisure, in this sense leisure, so that we have the creative space to accomplish greatness. By the way, that blank space is best utilized by engaging not in soul-numbing junk food-like activities, but in things like deep play, taking a nap, mentally refreshing activities like reading or having a thoughtful conversation. So I would encourage you, if you want to know more about how to get the best out of your times of rest and really to get like grade A steak rest that refreshes you, I would encourage you to check out Alex Sujong Kim Peng's book titled Rest. We'll include a link for that in the show notes. As the author describes, rest takes as much work and effort to cultivate as does, well, work. So here's a quick habit for daily practice. You can create margin in your life by leaving significant portions of your schedule open and learning to live well below your means, both in time and in the way you spend money. You can refuse to commit to hefty car payments or a mortgage that you simply can't afford. One of the best ways to do this is by observing some form of Sabbath rest. You can turn off your cell phones, electronic devices, and you can get fresh air with your family. You can practice contentment by listing out, and I do this in the mornings, list out and pray through the five things that you're most grateful for today. This will help you focus your energy on things you already have, most of which you'll find are not material possessions and most of which aren't related to activity or accomplishment, but most often I find it's the people in my life that make the difference. Tyranny of the urgent is the next concept that I want to explore. As Charles Hummel aptly points out in his book, Freedom from the Tyranny of the Urgent, One of life's incontrovertible rules is that your greatest danger is letting urgent things crowd out important ones. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a small business owner, people and things will constantly arise on a daily basis that demand your urgent attention. Some of these might be taken care of and constitute genuine emergencies. 
Say when you're a toddler has a Lego stuff up his nose, or there's a water main break during one of your construction projects. But more often than not, those things that frequently scream urgently for our attention are actually less important than they seem, and many of them can wait. For example, you've scheduled the morning to prepare an important presentation, but that incessantly annoying chime from your email inbox on your phone or your desktop computer, well, it grabs your attention. Before you know it, you're responding to emails about trivial matters that falsely demand immediate action. Right before you know it, you're chatting with coworkers, you're hanging out at the water cooler, you're getting coffee in the kitchen at work, and you're responding to messages on Facebook Messenger. Before you even realize it, the morning is gone, the presentation remains blank, and you now have 30 minutes to showtime. Right, you're panicked, you're fried, because you've poured out your energy in a thousand different directions, but not in the one that really mattered. Or perhaps you've got to prepare dinner for your family, right? You're a housewife. You got to pick up these kids from school, private Christian classical school, of course, not public school. But a friend calls to vent about her life of utter boredom while she sips rosé. You lose track of time, you burn the casserole, you're late to pick up the kids, and you miss your husband's walk through the front door. The really important work, feeding your family and welcoming your husband back into the home, well, all of this gets neglected for an urgent but mind-numbingly unnecessary phone call. And as a result of this, everyone's stress levels are on the rise. If we do this sort of thing regularly, our life's most important work forever gets put off for things that will seem rather insignificant on our deathbeds. Instead of living intentionally and focusing on the work that holds the most meaningful and lasting impact, thus feeling satisfied about how we have invested our time, we waste our time responding to many pointless notifications, vibrations, phone calls, and other urgent demands for our time and energy. A simple but effective habit to cultivate on this front is simply to ask every time a request for your time or energy comes up in the moment, you should ask yourself, is this urgent or is this important? Again, as we'll talk about in a minute, if you have a list of priorities and things that are most important, you can filter each request through that. And over time, you'll get better at realizing, hey, this is urgent. Most things are. And so, no, I'm not going to do that. One thing I've also done is carve out space in my schedule to block out the urgent. So especially when I'm writing, when I'm podcasting, I have chunks of the day where I turn off my cell phone or I put it on Do Not Disturb, right? I close all my apps, I close down any chimes on my computer, I'm not in my email, I'm not doing any of those things. For this time frame, all I'm doing is writing, right? So that's another way to guard your schedule so that you accomplish what's really important and you protect yourself from the tyranny of the urgent. The next thing I want to talk about is what I'll call essentialism, the disciplined pursuit of less. The solution to the tyranny of the urgent is to live like an essentialist. This is a term that's unpacked in Greg McCown's book, Essentialism. The subtitle of the book really says it all. It's this, the disciplined pursuit of less. Think of it like minimalism, except not applied to the possessions you own, but to the work and activities that you pursue. 
The fundamental mindset of the essentialist is to decide which tasks are most important and then learning how to say no to many good things along the way. Likewise, the whole approach depends on cultivating the habit of setting priorities, saying no early and often, and answering the fundamental question. If I could be truly excellent at only one thing, what would that be? As McCown rightly explains, the word decision means literally to cut something off. We have to decide to cut off lots of activities, commitments, and requests for our time if we're going to do the work that is truly great. This includes using our God-given gifts to do the meaningful work that most refreshes our souls and brings lasting impact to others. As a helpful habit, one of the things that I continually do is sit down and think about what are my spiritual gifts, what are my giftings overall, what are my desires, what are my abilities, and then what are my opportunities. For me, it's a very simple question. The things that I really love and can get lost doing are writing, podcasting, reading and doing research, stuff like this. When people ask me, how do I know what is the work that I'm most passionate about? I often refer them back to something that Mark Manson said in one of his blog posts. The thing that you really are made to do and the thing that you really love is the thing that when you're doing it, you forget to eat and you forget to use the bathroom, right? If for me, a good example is like last night, I sit down, I'm writing this, this podcast and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sit down. I'm just going to crank out a few sentences. I sit down, I start writing and I look up at the clock and it's 12.02 in the morning. I don't know where the last five hours just went. Kids are in bed, the lights are off, and I'm like, what happened? Right. And in my mind, it was like, you know, 0.5 seconds have gone by. So that's a good indicator. Can you, maybe it's when you're building knives, right? Maybe it's when you're woodworking. Maybe it's when you're preparing a sermon. Maybe it's when you're doing landscaping around the house. Maybe it's when you're working with your hands with tools in the garage. Whatever it is, most men can identify with things that, listen, when I do this, I lose track of time. I love it. Um, and these are things that I would put in the category of essential. Then what I'll do is sit down and say, okay, how do I make sure that every week I put a premium and a priority on making sure that I have time to do these things? Because what will happen inevitably is the things that are most important are the things that get pushed off the most. And so unless you intentionally set aside time to do the work, blue collar mentality, do the work every day on the things that are essential to you, they will get put off. So it requires that you prioritize these things. This leads directly to the next point, which is this. We need to prioritize the great instead of the good. Now, I always think about this like weight loss. In the beginning, it's really easy. Like if you're really fat and you eat like a cow and you're just pounding like Big Macs every day and you're, you know, drinking tons of soda. I've been there. Trust me. I know how it is like. The first week I was on a diet, I dropped soda and I dropped like 15 pounds, right? That's great. But at some point we realize that ultimate health is going to mean a lot more than that. And so with decisions and priorities, this is why we need them. Because eventually you're going to have to make decisions between lots of good things and really great things. And there's a big difference. One of the really helpful things that McCown addresses in his book, Essentialism, is that he helps us understand the art of setting priorities. Now, I want you to consider something about busy people. This is from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, busy people are actually just lazy people who have failed to take the time to evaluate what is most important for them to accomplish. 
So if you don't have priorities in your life, the reality is you're lazy. If you are frantic and busy, you're lazy. And this laziness often leads to what I will call a position of straddling. That is, we try to do everything all at once, right? We believe the lie about multitasking. And in my life, this is what it looks like. I commit to five different things. And I try to do them all at the same time. I try to burn the candle at both ends. And what happens? Like everybody that I committed to is upset because I didn't really do a great job on any one thing, right? This, this posture of straddling really doesn't work. It doesn't allow us to do anything very well. It just lets us do a lot of things really crappily. And so I want to remind you what the great philosopher Ron Swanson said. Don't half-ass two things. Whole ass, one thing. Now, as an example of why it's important to come up with a list of uh, just a few priorities, like one or two, uh, McCown points out that originally the word priority was a singular word. Later in history, it was changed so that it was a plural. But before that, it had no plural form. The point was you should have just one priority, right? As Christians, we think about things like Jesus' statement seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added to you. He doesn't say, seek first these 12 things. But McCown says in the book, he said, so often I will go to companies and I will do consulting work for them. And like one tech company, he said, I want you to list your top three priorities for work projects for the next year. And the IT director got back to him and she said, I can come up with no less than 17 top priorities for the year. Well, as you can imagine, that's very unhelpful. And it's absolutely absurd. We laugh at it when the example is given of someone else. But if we really evaluated our own lives, we'd recognize that many times we're doing the exact same thing. Many of us are living this way. We have no time or really do we put in the effort to stop and consider what is the actual aim of my life? At the end of my life, what will it matter that I've actually accomplished? And so here's a habit for you to cultivate. Once per week, spend at least an hour going over your monetary budget and calendar for the purpose of evaluation and planning. So evaluation, you're examining the past week, month, and then planning, you're looking ahead to the next month, and you're allocating resources, you're scheduling things, and you're evaluating according to your priorities. What are the most important things, and then I need to schedule them. When you look back at the month prior, you should look at your expenditures of time and energy and money. And you should say, well, was I realistic? Did I achieve the priorities I had set the month before? Did my money go where I wanted it to? How many times did I buy things that were quote unquote unexpected or urgent? Did I stay on budget? And you can do the same thing with your time. I generally will do this on Sunday afternoons after church, after I take a nap, I've got some rest, I reflect on the sermon, and I reflect on what the week ahead is going to be like, what tasks I know that I have. And then as I have this priority, I can say like when on Tuesday, when five people ask me if I can come do a podcast with them, I can say, no, I can do it next week because I have X amount of time allocated for that per week. Um, Otherwise, what happens is I end up, and I've done this, uh, in one week, I might be on six or seven podcasts uh, in the evenings after work. And then what will happen is I actually put off the most important work, which is creating content. That is the whole reason why I would be on a podcast anyway. So evaluating your schedule each week. How are you spending your time and how is it based on your priorities? 
Given your limited resources, you need to decide which things are most important and then schedule them. It's that simple. Now, the last thing that I want to address is pretty simple, and it's also pretty life-changing if you can grasp it and put it into practice. And it's this. No is a complete sentence. No is a complete sentence. Have you ever had this experience when somebody asks you in the the moment, right? It, It always feels like you're kind of trapped, but somebody says, hey, can you commit to this? You know, can you do this presentation tomorrow? You know, by tomorrow. You know, you're leaving work and somebody says, can you do this presentation tomorrow morning? And we feel pressure in the moment, right? And so generally we feel a pressure to say yes, we don't want to disappoint people. And what we need to learn how to do is simply to say no. And to say no without giving explanations. You know, here's another example. Maybe it's after church on Sunday, you had a long week and you're fried and you want to prioritize Sabbath rest. And so what you really want to do is you want to go home and you, have, you want to have lunch with your family and you just want to sit around and play games in the backyard and basically do nothing. But somebody says, oh, hey, there's a homeless shelter ministry happening after church. I really want you to be there. Right? And then you feel this pressure because you're about, if, if you explain it, you're about to tell somebody, well, no, I can't go help the homeless people because I want to do nothing. But here's the deal. You should not feel guilty about that. And you don't owe everyone an explanation. Right? This is the point. No is a complete sentence. When somebody asks you, said, can you uh, come to my house on this night and play poker? Or can you do this? Whatever it is, you can feel comfortable saying no, but thank you. That's it. You don't owe everyone an explanation. And if we're going to be essentialists, and if we're going to conquer overload as men and do the work that's really important, it means that we have to learn how to say no a lot. And again, not to feel like we have to always provide a long explanation. As we develop the habit of politely turning down requests for our time, money, and energy, we then have the ability and opportunity to focus on work that is truly important. So again, here's a simple habit. You can ask yourself, were there times in the past week where I said yes to something without thinking about it and then later regretting it? Well, there's a simple solution. I've employed this in my own life. I commit to delaying immediate decisions as a rule of thumb. So if somebody asks me, say, hey, Tuesday, can you join me for this podcast? I always say, I'll have to check my schedule and get back to you. Even if I think, oh, no, I'm totally free. It's totally good. Right? This gives me time to process without making a dumb knee-jerk reaction. And not only do I generally look at my schedule, but I can also sit down and say, you know what? I've already got five interviews this week. I've got um, tons of work going on at work. I've got a a ton of uh, other writing and projects that I've got going on. You know, that's not really a good week for me to do that. And I can reschedule for a different week or decide not to do it as a whole. But this is a good practice. Just say that, just commit to not making immediate decisions as a rule of thumb, uh, but delay them and give yourself time to think and evaluate And then again, I would also say for people who are constantly pressured, well, I need to know now. Well, then that's a person that's a definite no, right? People should respect you enough to give you the time to make up your own mind and to decide for yourself. Again, I would encourage people in church. Church can be one of the worst places where this happens. Our ministry is the most important thing on the face of the planet, and you need to be a part of it now and commit now. We should be grateful when somebody says, you know what, I'm going to pray about that and think about it. 
And if they say, you know what, that's really not where I'm going to invest right now. We should also be grateful for that. That's a way that we respect each other's boundaries. So now we'll wrap off with, I, with what I will call the payoff. In the end, we can't talk about reclaiming masculine virtue without talking about environmental factors that impact our hormonal states as men. And this includes a culture with a death wish for burnout. We need as men to crush overload. We need to discipline our schedules, our budgets, our time. And we need to seriously think through our priorities if we're going to live up to our full capacity as potent men. One of the things we talk about a lot in this show is finding the work, your life's work that you're really meant to do, your gifting, and then putting yourself wholeheartedly into that. We talk about building durable households. We talk about building communities, finding your tribe. None of this stuff is possible if you're constantly fried, burned out, and overloaded in your schedule, right? You need time to show hospitality to other brothers so you can have meaningful conversations. You need to have fun with other people so that you can, again, just build your your brotherhoods and your tribes. What we desperately need is to think through our priorities. And as we do so, we get to embrace our full capacity as potent men. More rest, well-used leisure time, and greater health will ultimately make us more creatively productive in life's most essential work, and it will make us better men. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Really do appreciate all of your support, especially the Patreon supporters. And again, if you have benefited from this show, it takes a lot of money to host podcasts, it takes a lot of money and time to write them. It takes a lot to fund the equipment. So again, if you have benefited from the show, I'd encourage you to support us on Patreon. You can support even at the minimal tier of $5 per month. And why else is it so important? Well, because we see that Christians are being crushed in the culture. And if you enjoy the beauty of Christian cultural production and things like this podcast, then it's worth supporting with our dollars. I would encourage you to do that. Also, check out some of the great works we'll provide in the show notes. Other guys doing great work. If you're not a pro member on Gab, I would encourage you to do that. If you're not supporting Brian Sauve and his music making, you can support him. Those are a few places to check out. And of course, you can also check out my work with Dan Burkholder at wilderness-warrior.com. We have the Wilderness Warrior podcast, and we're doing some really awesome stuff over there. Be sure to check out the store where you can buy Hardman podcast t-shirts, pint glasses, and also Wilderness Warrior apparel. Again, we really appreciate everyone's support. And until next time, stay frosty. Fight the good fight. Act like men.